Was it bad? Uh, no, e Egan, uh, one could take a look at the votes and see uh, where he stood, except you really couldn't tell much by the votes. Well, that's why I asked. Um, the, uh, no, I do not know what Egan's attitude was. <coughs> I, I, I do know that generally, in those years, the uh, people who had been in Alaska a long time were probably least sympathetic to Alaska natives. And um, it, it was the uh, newcomers, the bleeding heart liberals, who um, w were more sympathetic, those who romanticized Alaska. Uh, they would support natives, uh, and uh, you know, without really knowing, I would assume that Egan would have been among those who would feel that no special shrift should be given the natives. All right. Well, the reason I asked was that I think I, meant, I told you that uh, when Ken Jensen was on. Bartlett staff, he came up with this great idea about how the state would select, this oh, like yeah, 62, right. they'd select all the land around the villages and then just give it to them, and that would be mm -hmm. land claims, and he, and he went up and he couldn't sell that to Egan. That's right, so I, I was, forget. I was curious, you know, Bartlett mm -hmm. thought that was a great idea, mm -hmm. and it probably would have worked in 62, yeah. and, you know. Um, so I've always been curious about what Egan's real views and all this was, and it also mm -hmm. seems in the '66 election, it's interesting. There's the OEO thing going on that you've already talked about, but it certainly appears that Egan didn't have the message that this whole native land claim stamp. He only lost, and I looked up the vote the other day. He only lost by a little over a thousand votes. Right, and and uh, the Arctic Slope uh, turned against him, and that right. uh, and they, that alone would have made the difference. Right, and they took Egan, uh, Rivers out. Right. You know, so. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, Egan did did not understand that. Just as in 1974, it was 70. Yes, yeah, 74. He did not understand the native movement. I, I mean, the environmental movement. And uh, I have a letter somewhere where. Uh, I wrote to him just before the election, suggest in '74, suggesting that uh, uh, he, Bill, say publicly that I was born in Alaska. I love Alaska. I love the environment. I'm part of it. I've always worked for Alaska and for environmental quality. And I told him this would be so easy for you to say because you've always been here and this is part of you as it is part of all of us. He never would do it, just as uh, that stupid thing in 66, picking that fight and going right into the AFN meeting and still insisting that he will not go along with them, which was just, I don't remember that detail, you probably have it, but as I remember he actually told them that he wasn't going to go along with the OEO independence. Right. Well, you know, it is interesting that 
one of the things that comes up about that 66 meeting is that it appears from the paper record that it's the first time that the, pol the politicians are all over that meeting. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're all there buying everybody lunch or hosting dinners or, I mean, the, the idea that you had all these natives who they wouldn't be there unless they'd been selected by other natives to speak for them, at mm -hmm. least in theory, as far as these politicians. You know? right. And it really does seem as if it's the first real sort of flexing of muscles for what really became then a very, you know, significant block, in terms yeah. of the swing block politically. Well, the yeah. thing is that politicians knew they were aware of the block voting pattern among natives. And, uh, you, you know, the, I remember this clearly. I, I haven't paid too much attention to it lately, but it used to be, you know, sort of a whole village would go about 97%. Then you figure, well, then there are the teachers and right. a few, maybe a few other government workers. The white guys. Went the other, yeah, the white guys who went the other way. But uh, um, when I ran um, for the Constitutional Convention in 55, um, it was a village, I, I can't even remember which one, in Bristol Bay, that cast something like 54 unanimous votes for me. I'd never been in that village. And it was years later that I found out a Jesuit priest whom I'd met in Dillingham liked me, and he let the word out that uh, you should vote for Vic Fisher, Victor Fisher. <laughs> and so the whole village voted. And that's the way generally uh, the votes went. So the politicians were very savvy and uh, going there, of course, I think they've learned now that the leaders don't necessarily carry everybody, but certainly on the North Slope, um, when they uh, Arctic Slope Native Association uh, went for Hickel, uh, that made a tremendous difference. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting talking with, uh, with Jim Hawkins, who I think you mentioned you remember oh, in yeah. the old days, that he said that he had been, he'd got his job as BI area director when Stepovich had gotten appointed governor because because of the the kinds of phenomena that you just described, that that Greening and Mucktuck Marston had always had this hammerlock mm -hmm. on the village vote. That Marston would go in there on, on Greening's behalf and say, <laughs> you know, me Mucktuck Marston, you know, you vote my guy, and and that uh, part of the whole strategy of appointing Hawkins was was that he was well known. He was like one of the few Republicans. Mm -hmm. It was well known in the bush, and that they hoped that he might be able to do something about all that. Which I'm sure he didn't have much effect. Uh, he didn't have much effect, but uh, it was interesting that that was their aspiration for him yeah. in terms of how he ended up with the job. You know. um, how about I guess the other thing while we still have some tape going is what's your recollections of my old friend Bill Paul? When did you did you ever know Bill Paul very well? Or well, I knew I knew Bill Paul mostly in a. Um, you might say non-political fashion. I, 
I, I met Bill Paul at all these various meetings, and there'd be in Juno. This would be in the 60s, so. In the 60s. I, I, and, uh, uh, oh, hell no, 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 no. I knew uh, Bill back in the 50s. And, uh, yeah, that's right, that was long before these meetings started. Um, I met Bill Paul uh, by playing chess with him. Uh, when um, I'd been Juno on and off, and uh, I, I was a lobbyist in '55 uh, for the League of Alaska Cities, now the Alaska Municipal League, and uh, got involved with some chess players, principally, I guess, through Henry Camero, and. Uh, uh, met Bill Paul, and then during the 1957 legislative session, when I was in Juneau, uh, I played regularly. The, the, the met with the chess club, and every whatever night it was, Tuesday night or whatever, there was a competition going, and Bill Paul's house then was right across uh, Seward, at Seward Street, Main Street, whatever, from the Capitol building. And um, so very often the games were played in his house. And uh, uh, I went right up the chess ladder to the finals. And I, th I, I don't think it was Bill Paul who was in the finals, but he, he and I were very even. Mm -hmm. I, anyway, I made the finals. Uh, and then came the last week of the legislative session and I think it was the last night, the next to the last night, and I just couldn't take the evening off to play chess, so I forfeited my <laughs> <laughs> finals game. But anyway, that's how I got to know Bill Paul, playing chess with him. Hmm. Well, was he, obviously he was, since he was a good chess player as you were, I assume he was a good chess player, is that? Fairly, sort of, I'd say middle range. Hmm. Uh, I've never played against... Uh, any grand masters, right. but uh, I'm sure it, when it came to a grand master, I'd be below the middle <laughs> range. Yeah. But I'd played chess since I was a little kid, so. Right. Well, what was he like? Was he like. Uh, Bill was the most wonderful, pleasant guy, and uh, he, uh, he, he, he always had stories to tell. I don't remember a single one, but. I remember he had stories to tell, and uh, uh, had sort of lots of lots of memories. So he he would was he embittered at all at that point? Like not, and, and, uh, I don't remember that at all. I mean, no embitterment whatsoever. Huh. And maybe it was because I didn't delve deeply. Uh, it was um, more at the. Uh, you know, sort of, you might say, the social level that our interaction took place. And then, of course, once the land claims movement got going, I'd see him at all these meetings, and uh, uh, I'd say he was very upbeat hmm. at that point because. Did you ever uh, talk to you about land claims in the 50s? No, we never talked uh, historically. Hmm. No. No, but later it, it, it was almost as if. My day has come, was sort of his attitude, it, and I didn't feel at that point the, any bitterness on his part. It was sort of all 
sort of gung-ho pushing and of course all the lawyers were pushing not only forward but also sideways yeah. to get the other lawyers out of their way <laughs> and get more clients as many as they could hmm. actually I was, it was interesting talking I stopped into Albuquerque and uh, when I was through with Stu Udall and uh, came in after Hawkins left, so he showed up in like 62 as area director, and, mm. and at that time Paul was living in Seattle. It's 62? Yeah, well, really, he was, uh, Bennett was area director from 62 to 66 when Stewart made him commissioner of mm. BIA. Correct. So sometime in that period, the 62 okay. to 66 period, and, and <laughs> And Paul, who was, you know, this ubiquitous, is that the right word, I guess, pamphleteer, right, mm -hmm. um, was whining to Bennett about how he was so broke he couldn't reproduce. This is like in the days before Xerox machines and shit, right? He couldn't reproduce <laughs> his pamphlets I, I, I to send know, out. I don't know if people existed before Xerox right. attacks. <laughs> <laughs> but so Bennett said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do, Bill. Send up your shit to me from... Seattle, and I'll have it all mimeographed off on, the, on my BIA machines, and I'll send it back to you in <laughs> Seattle, and you can send it out. <laughs> and so, wow. this is like a big secret, right? Uh -huh. Because all of Paul's pamphleteering was all, you know, calling <laughs> the BIA a bunch of scumbags, That's right? Great. So every week, according to Bennett, Paul would send him his that week's missive, and uh -huh. Bennett would have it retyped <laughs> and put out on the BIA. Uh, you know, somebody used to turn those things and mimeograph, the, mimeograph things, right. and then he'd he'd Xerox off you know a hundred <laughs> of them, and then he'd send them back to Paul, and Paul would send them out from Seattle, lambasting the bureau, which was sort of interesting. Um, well, I don't know. Is there anything else uh, worth talking about while the tape is rolling? Um, you never actually lived in Fairbanks until '66, then, is that right? right? So you missed. Ted Stevens in the 50s and all that. You never knew Nick Gray or any of that stuff. Oh, I knew Nick Gray. I mean, I knew all those people. But, uh, you know, Alaska is a small village. You didn't have to live <laughs> live in any particular place. No, I, I knew Nick afterward. Uh, uh, I was out of state from 61, fall of 61 till summer of 66. So Yeah, that was about the time he came down to Anchorage. Yeah. And uh, uh, that's it. I I attended a hell of a lot of AFN conventions <laughs> during my lifetime. I was there when uh, um, Udall declared a land freeze. And, oh, in '68. That was pretty exciting. That was in the basement of the Switzerland. In and, Fairbanks. In Fairbanks. Terrible place for a meeting, but it was pretty exciting. Yeah. Well, actually, tell me, uh, and then I will turn the tape off and we'll go back to the music. Is <laughs> how about Howard Rock? What do you remember about Howard? Howard, I just found. A, I was last night. I was going through uh, a list of my files in the archives, and there is listed something I had. Been missing forever. 
and that that I felt guilty about having in my possession, and that is a folder of photographs taken by Howard Rock um, in 1969. There was a rural cap board meeting in uh, Point Hope, and uh, Howard and I had flown to uh, from Fairbanks to Kotzebue and then got on a twin otter Kotzebue to uh, Point Hope. And there were very few people on the plane, only four, so we were sitting together and then all of a sudden Howard sees a lead along the shore and he Vic, look at the whales! And he was like a kid, he was so excited. And there was this lead that was probably anywhere 60 to 80 feet wide. And it was like a highway. There were these white beluga whales that looked like passenger cars. And it was like a three-lane highway because they were just sort of going like this, you know, next to each other mm -hmm. and in different lanes. And occasionally you'd see great big truck semi, a black shape, uh, just cu coming up and, um, and then disappearing again. And as you look ahead and back, uh, there were whales as far as you could see. And Howard kept saying, those people are out in the ice. They must be out in the ice by now. This whole, I can't wait to, he just kept talking excitedly. And uh, sure enough, as we uh, approached Point Hope, there was, the whole village was out on the uh, ice by the lead. And uh, you could see this row of tents. And uh, we, uh, uh, we went into the airstrip and uh, some people had, arrived by a snow machine and they um, hauled us right out to the ice. We went straight out to the ice and uh, the next 48 hours were among the most exciting times I've spent. Anyway, Howard took a whole bunch of pictures and at one point he gave me his folder of photographs. And I just ran across totally irrelevant and shouldn't even be on the tape. But right, but I mean, photographs of, of that particular of that, trip. Of pulling the whale. Uh, right. I got three whales uh, that day. And uh, he, uh, he had a camera and had lots of pictures. Uh, I don't know if you've seen a picture of me with the whale in the background. And, mm. uh, I don't know. I'm holding a spear or whatever. It looks a very heroic pose, and uh, uh, Howard took that. Yeah. But uh, that was also the time when, um, sort of after the whale whales were cut up and the meat distributed, the town went on a binge to celebrate big potlatch, and then uh, people just drank themselves into oblivion and. Along the way, um, um, I was staying at Howard's brother's place. I forget his name, Victor Vincent mm -hmm. or something. And um, uh, Archie, no, I can't remember. And uh, 
pent-up venom against Howard came out. God, it was a horrible evening from that standpoint. If, you know, you've turned white man, you live with the white man, and uh, you're one of them and not one of us. And it, it was painful, just very, very painful to hear it from his own brother. Yeah, and how did, how did Howard react to all that? Howard just sort of took it quietly. Howard wasn't drinking, as I remember. I mean, he wasn't drinking then. Howard drank a lot at various times, but as I remember, he, he certainly wasn't drunk. He wasn't sick drunk. A wild drunk is something. And uh, it was exciting up to then, and then it became very painful. Hmm. Anyway, yes, I knew Howard. I served as advisory board for the Tundra Times. And, uh, what was he? Was he generally um, enthusiastic, generally morose, generally? I, I would say he was, um, during the, I mean, he was enthusiastic when we were in a plane going to right. Point Hope. Uh, I would say about the Tundra Times, it was such a struggle to finance the paper, to keep it alive. It was sort of week after week, month after month, trying to keep it alive that uh, I'd say it's certainly from the standpoint of being the editor, he, but the publisher, he was certainly not enthusiastic. But uh, he was certainly dogged about it and uh, um, just determined to persevere, just determined. I mean, just, he, uh, he, he starved himself in order to put out the papers, really what it amounted to. And, uh, <clears throat> well, particularly after 68, when you know, Forbes died in 68, and that was yeah. really the end of the money Yeah, bags. well, that's, it was after that that I came <clears throat> as advisory board and worked as close as I could with him. Hmm. You think he was, uh, um, happy about the result, or, I mean, was he... I, th I think he realized that he was he was an important influence in bringing Alaska Natives together. He, he was very conscious of that. He was conscious of himself, you know, that series that he wrote about mm -hmm. his life and the stories about his childhood and sort of how he progressed. Mm. Uh, th those were testimonials. And I remember he, he uh, he was talking about it one time, about uh, how important it was for him to tell other people about his life, about the life of the Eskimos, about the hardships and the joys, and that uh, it sort of, it was almost as if that justified his life and his existence, you know, having left the heritage of that in writing. To actually having written it, not just having lived it, but to have it headed down uh, black and white. Hmm. Well, um, I guess we've sort of exhausted uh, our subject matter. Unless, is there anything else about 
the pre-71 era that's worth talking about? Don't have to think anything of. No, I assume you've got the uh, um, Federal Field Committee oh, covered and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. In fact, I'm... Uh, one of the more interesting things... Well, actually... You have a lot of shit on there. No. 